Well, good morning once again. Uh, as I said, my name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here, and I'm excited to continue in our study of the book of James. If you're new here, we're so thankful that you've joined us, and you've joined us right, right really at the start of what is going to be our spring series all the way up until Easter, where we are studying the book of James. And it's a book, it's a letter that was written to early believers uh, with the purpose of giving direction and wisdom and giving kind of commands to obey for the Christians who are seeking to live faithful and fruitful lives. Because what we see repeated in the book of James, what we hopefully find true in our lives day to day is that not only are we saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but we are then called to walk by faith in the completed work of Christ. That the faith that we put in him would not just save us from our sin, not just save us from the consequence of our sin, but that it would in fact guide and direct us in our day to day living. And this is really challenging for us uh, because so often, even as we seek to live a life according to the will of God, we have desires that lead us in completely different directions. Uh, when I was five years old, I went to the mall with my mom, and at one point in this mall trip, the last stop we had at, at the mall was we went to the candy store. And when we went to this candy store, we were looking around, I think my mom, my mom loves uh, Whoppers and like, I don't know, certain candies, and so I think she was just there for her, like that, and more power to her, right? She's juggling three kids, she's like, I, mama needs a treat, and I'm like, you're right. And so we went to the candy store, mom was picking out something for her, it wasn't a trip for me, and yet... As we were walking around this candy store, I saw a bucket that was just full of Reese's peanut butter, Reese's peanut butter cups. I get choked up just thinking about it. <laughs> so good. So good. And even though I knew that trip wasn't for me, and even though I was five years old and I didn't really have a lot of purchasing power or autonomy in my life over my finances, I knew I really, really wanted one of those Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And so I decided in that moment, as I desired to eat one of these cups, rather than ask my mom to buy me one, rather than trying to you know, scrounge around for any, like it probably was like a dime, you know, probably cost 10 cents, I couldn't find that in my pocket. So instead, I decided that I was gonna act on that desire and I was just gonna grab a cup and stick it in my pocket. And that's what I did. I grabbed one of those Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I stuck it in my pocket. I was like, it's going to be fine. We're going to get out of here. Like, it'll be good. Like, and then I'm going to be so happy. I'm going to be so satisfied when we get home. And we watch, you know, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and I can eat my Reese's Peanut Butter Cup in the joy and the safety of my abode. But as we were walking out, I was being way too suspicious, like way too suspicious with my little pocket of shame. And so to, to hear my mom tell it, apparently I would just kept sticking my pocket in, or my hand in my pocket and I kept like asking like, so we're going home, right? Like what, we're gonna go home now? Like that's what we're gonna do? And you know, hand in my pocket, that's unnatural. It's not a normal action. So my mom immediately knows something's up. And so she asked me, she goes, hey, well, hey, Jacob, what's, what's in your pocket? Like, what do you got there? I was like, nothing. Not my hand, right? Have you changed your hair? I love it. You know, like I immediately try to distract, try to like move us in a different direction. But sure enough, my mom's a super sleuth. And so she discovered that I did, in fact, have a Reese's peanut butter cup in my pocket that I had stolen from the candy store. And so immediately we had to turn around. We were out in the parking lot. We had to turn around, go back inside the mall. We had to go back into the store. I had to hand it to the worker. And I had to apologize. And then I spent 10 years in prison. Um, but I got out in high school, and now it's good. But it was. It was a moment where, even as a five-year-old, I found myself with a desire that led me to a decision that was completely wrong. 
And, and that's true for us, is that as we seek to satisfy the different desires of our hearts and our minds, many times in our seeking to satisfy those desires, it can lead us into decisions that are outside of the will of God, that are wrong, that are sinful, that miss the mark of righteousness that God has put forth for his people. This is a tendency that we all fall into. Sin is something that is crouching at all of our doorsteps, seeking to devour us, seeking to lure us away from the life that God is calling us to live, and instead to satisfy our natural desires in a way that is contrary to the direction and the will of God. This is something that comes for us early, and it never leaves. And so it should be no surprise that as we read the book of James, as we read about this instruction of how to live a faithful and a fruitful life, that at Just as last week he talked a lot about trial and testing, this week in this passage in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 1, if you want to go there in your Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. You're going to go there in your, turn there in your Bible, go there in your phone. We're going to find that he's going to shift from testing and trial into temptation towards this tendency that we all have to believe our own lies, to, to essentially secure our own destruction by making choices, by making decisions that are, in fact, contrary to the will of God. And so what we find in James 1, 13 through 18, is really a twofold command, that we are called as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, to resist temptation. And the best way to do that is by remembering the truth that God has given us about himself and about us. So if you'll look in 13 through 18, we're going to see these kind of three key concepts laid out by James in this letter to early believers. He's going to address the deception that sin has in our lives, the destruction that sin brings, but then the defense that we have even in the midst of temptation, even in these desires that can otherwise lead us astray. We do have a defense given to us by the Lord. So if you read with me in verse 13, he starts this passage by saying this, let no one say when he is tested that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now this is a really key little couple verses, because James is making a pivot. He's, as I said, he's he's been talking about testing and trial, of how we can find joy in trial, because we know that God uses it, God uses testing for our good, for our endurance, for our character, and for our hope. And so just before this, in verse 12, James says, happy is the one, blessed is the one who endures testing. Why? Because God rewards the life that is well lived according to his purposes. And so here, it's interesting that some of your translations, as you're looking at it on your phone or in your Bible, it might say that, let no one say when he is tempted, that I am tempted by God. Now, the translation here is very intentional because You see, what happens is if we're looking at this in the original Greek, the term that is used for both testing and tempting is the exact same. It's the same term. And it shows up repeatedly in chapter 1, and it shows up a few more times even through the book of James. And so some scholars would argue, and I think I'm convinced by their argument, that when James is talking in verse 13, as he's kind of rounding this corner from testing to temptation— that he is using really kind of a fun wordplay in the Greek, where he's saying that, let no one say, right, he just talked about testing. He says, so when you're tested, when you're facing these external tests and circumstances that are difficult, it says, don't make this into a thing. Don't, don't convince yourself that you're being tempted to sin by the Lord. A trial, a test, is in itself not 
a temptation. A difficult circumstance in life is not in, in itself a temptation. The temptation comes, as James says, from within. Temptation is something that, that we have in our natural state because we're fallen, because we're broken. Because even as followers of Jesus Christ, we still have this old nature that wants to rebel against the Lord, that wants to seek satisfaction outside of his will. And so James says that when you are tested, when you are under trial, don't convince yourself that this is the Lord trying to lure and entice you to sin. Right? That's why he makes a point of saying God cannot be tempted by evil, and therefore he tempts no one. Sin is, in fact, by definition, contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, it is absent from God's playbook. He's never going to tempt us. He's never going to try to lure us towards sin. James is very intentional in saying that this temptation comes from within. That when we are tempted, it is our own desires that are seeking to lure and entice us. And the terms here that he's using for luring and enticing, it's, it brings up this, these hunting metaphors. He, he, the lure is this idea of setting a trap for a small animal, for some you know, woodland critter. You want to catch Bambi and eat him, right? Like that's, that's the luring. That, the enticing is the, is the term that was used to bait a hook to catch a fish, right? So in both of those situations, what James is saying is that we, from our own desires, are seeking to conceal the consequence of our decision, to conceal the consequence of our choice to sin. That's what it means to lure and to entice. That's what it means to set a trap and to bait a hook, is that you are trying to conceal for the animal or for the fish the true consequence of their action of stepping into that trap, of eating that jar of peanut butter or biting onto that rubber worm hanging on the hook. And we are really, really good at this. We are so skilled at convincing ourselves that, that sin is, in fact, either okay or not a big deal or is fully justified. So often for us in our lives, our disobedience before the Lord, it starts with this deception, that these lies that we tell ourselves, that we believe. One of my buddies is, they've got, one of my buddies has three or four, oh gosh, yeah, four, four small children at this point. And when he, with their oldest, was, was kind of learning the whole bedtime ritual, their daughter, their oldest was about four years old. And so they were in this kind of season of life where it was like, hey, you need to go to bed. Okay, you're out of bed. You need to go back to bed. Okay, you're out of bed again. What are you doing? Why is sin in the world? Right? And so in one of those evenings that they had where they're just kind of back and forth, back and forth, you need to go back to bed. You need to get in your bed. His daughter told him, Bethany, she says, Dad, I need to go potty. Right, Because she, she knew. She's like, that's a reasonable justification for why I'm awake, for why I'm out of bed. And so my, my buddy says, okay, fine. Then you need to go potty. Let's go to the bathroom, and you can go potty. So they went into the bathroom. He's like, okay, go ahead. Use the potty. You say you need to go potty, so just use the potty. And she sits directly on the edge of the bathtub. And so my buddy, Robert, he goes, Bethany, that's not where you go potty. And she looks at him dead in the eye, straight face, and tells him, I always go potty here. I always go potty here. And he was like, no, you don't. That's a lie. And now we're just snowballing the sin, baby girl. Like this, you know, look out. 
But she really, I think she genuinely, as, as he looked back, as he was telling his friends about this, he was like, I think she genuinely was convincing herself that that's where she went potty. She was like, which is not true. We don't allow that in our home. We're a place of order, not chaos, right? Like that's, that's not true. And yet we are so good at deceiving ourselves, at convincing ourselves that, that this wrong decision, this decision to, to be angry, to, to give in to lust, to give in to pride, our, des- our desire to, to act on and satisfy these, these, these desires of our heart and mind in a way that is contrary, that is wrong in the eyes of God, we convince ourselves that it's okay, maybe just this once. Or maybe we convince ourselves it's okay because we deserve it. We've been through all this other stuff. And we deceive ourselves into believing that disobedience is okay. And it's not. It's just not. But it's difficult because our desires are, are constant. Our desires are real. Our desires are natural. It's just that those desires in and of themselves, that chasing them with, with, with reckless abandon is not a reliable way to live. Right? Desires are good. We have natural desires for hunger or if we're thirsty, if we're tired, if we, want to have our, if we want our lives to have meaning, those are good desires that are given to us by the Lord. We need to feel hungry because otherwise we wouldn't eat. We need to feel thirsty, otherwise we wouldn't drink water. Some of us still don't drink water, and that's okay, you know, but we have these desires that are not naturally wrong. It's simply when we seek to satisfy those desires outside of the will of God that we fall into sin. But these desires are good. It's just that if we go about them in the wrong way, if we seek to satisfy them in the wrong way, the, the, the desire for hunger, which is inherently okay, it can lead us to gluttony. The, the desire we have for sleep and rest, it can lead to slothfulness. It can lead to laziness. The desire for meaning, for our lives to have meaning, can lead us to pride. It can lead us to just barrel, other, barrel over other people and, and to seeking to satisfy our own desire for importance or meaning. So it's not that the desires are inherently wrong, but it's that we are so good at convincing ourselves that we can satisfy these desires outside of the will of God, and that's what leads us to sin. It's because we believe those lies that we tell ourselves. And so the first and kind of key principle that we have right here in James 1 is that we need to find, root out, and then we need to resist and fight against these deceptions that we tell ourselves. And the reality is that I could speak in generalities, like I could throw out some like good standard, like, oh, you know, there's often there's like the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, right? There's sort of kind of key general temptations that we face. But the reality is that I don't actually know. We are all our own worst enemies. I know the lies that I like to believe. I know the lies that I am most most often going to tell myself, and that's true for all of us. And so it takes moments like this to pause and reflect. I'll tell you, the preparation process this week to preach this sermon was pretty intense (laughs) because the Lord would bring to my mind as I'm praying and asking the Lord to, hey, be at work this weekend. Be at work on Sunday. Help us see this. God's like, I'm not going to wait for Sunday for you. I'm just going to, here you go. And I was like, like, it's really difficult But it's so good for us to pause and reflect and be honest and ask the Lord to help us. God, help me spot these lies that I tell myself. Identify them. Because when we bring those lies, when we bring that deception to light, 
That's the first step in removing the power that that lie has over our lives. So we ask the Lord, God, bring these temptations, bring this deception to light. Help me remember your truth. Help me remember what is actually true, the way that you actually satisfy this desire. Because if I'm seeking to satisfy these desires in ways that are contrary to, the will, to your will, they're contrary to your commands, then what's going to happen is I'm going to inadvertently just race towards my own destruction. And that's where James immediately takes us. After he addresses the, desire, or the deception of sin, he immediately talks about the destruction and the death that comes as a consequence of our sin. Because when that deception and that desire meets, all of a sudden it leads to a decision that, that doesn't take us to where we actually want to go. Right? He says this in verse 15. He says that then when the desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. All right, so he's taking this, this, what should be a beautiful metaphor of a child being brought into the world, right? It's something that many of us have experienced. We've, we've had our own children, or if you don't have your own children, you were a child. I promise, your parents were like pumped when you showed up. Ask them, text them today, be like, did you like it when I was born? They have to say yes, right? It's like the law. But you, he's taking this, what should be a beautiful metaphor, and he's, he's showing us this, this twist of how sin, when this wrong, the sinful desire gives birth, when it conceives, it gives birth, not to a beautiful baby, it gives birth to sin. And then when that sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. So do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. It says we have to remember that if we are disobeying the command of God, that that's not gonna lead to our fulfillment. That's not actually gonna bring us to the satisfaction that we tell ourselves it's gonna bring. He says, instead, when we, act on sinful, when we act on these desires in a sinful manner, says what it does is it leads eventually to death, spiritual and physical, right? The disobedience that we have in our lives, it, it leads to death. That's why he says you shouldn't be led astray. You should stop the sin before it starts, right? Martin Luther has this great quote on sin and temptation, as he talks about these desires that can lead us towards disobedience and death, he says that you can't stop birds from flying overhead. You can't do that. Right? Those desires are going to come. Those thoughts are going to show up. Those feelings you're going to have. You can't stop birds from flying overhead. He says, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. So it's when we grab a hold of that desire, we grab a hold of that deception, we bring them together and we convince ourselves that we can act in a way contrary to the commands and the will of God, that's where sin comes to bear. That's how sin is born. And what we find is that sin is not innocuous. That sin is not, not just like a little thing we don't have to worry about. That sin, when it is full grown, actually leads to death. Disobedience always leads to death, both spiritual and physical. James probably has both in mind here. He talks about the, the physical death that we experience from disobedience later in this book. It's not just a spiritual death. It's not just the destruction, the, the fracturing, the, the, the fraying of our relationship with the Lord that we experience. It's also physical death. Literally just a few years ago, Iowa State University conducted a study around anger. They wanted to better understand anger and its place in human civilization. And so they surveyed all these dudes between the ages of 20 and 40. And they asked them about kind of their mental state. They asked them about their life stresses. They asked a lot about, okay, how often do you get angry? Like, do you get angry about these things or those things? Like, would you consider yourself an angry person? And what they found is that of these dudes that were between 20 and 40, 
that would typify, that would classify themselves, self-identify as, yeah, you know, I do get angry a lot about this thing or that thing. I do, I feel that in my life. Like, I just have this rage, this anger. What they found is it was a long-term study. And they found that those guys that self-identified as angry, that were actually got angry a lot in their lives, that they were one and a half times more likely, or sorry, less likely to reach the age of 70 because they would die. Anger is terrible for our health. It increases your blood pressure. It messes with your mental state. leads you into decisions that aren't great, that are dangerous at times. And this is true of all sin. God has warned us. He says sin is not good. It gives birth to death. That's why he's calling us to obedience, not just because he wants to see us jump through his hoops. God calls us to obedience because it really is the best life. It's not always the most comfortable, comfortable life. It's not always the easiest life. But God tells us repeatedly in Scripture that when we obey him, that is the best life. And it leads to the greatest result, which is a life in line and close relationship with him. And yet so often it is easy for us to just sort of ignore those results. We ignore the consequences of our sin. But eventually what that does, it leads us to regret. When we're children, we just act on feeling, right? Children are defined by, my wife and I have three little kids, and we, every single one of them, they will just, if they feel something, they just say it, or if they feel something, they just do it. And that's a sign of immaturity, right? We talked last week about how God's desire for us is not comfort, it's not stability, his desire for us is maturity, that we would grow in our walk, we would grow in our spiritual life. And if we're immature, we just act on feeling. That's why the mark of adulthood, the mark of maturity, is that we actually sometimes act despite our feelings. Children act on them. Adults, we can actually pause, we can reflect, we can look ahead, and we say, you know what, I'm going to make these decisions not because of how I feel, but sometimes despite how I feel. I'm going to choose to live in this way. I'm going to choose to make these decisions because I know it's what's actually best because I know what's on the other side of that wrong decision. One of the repeated refrains in my home right now that we say around the dinner table is sometimes you can eat things that aren't your favorite. That's a good mantra to live by. Just tell, tell your family, spread it around because it has done wonders for us. I mean, I say wonders, it works half the time. But we tell our kids, if we sit down at the table and we have this meal, this lavish meal that's been prepared for us by my loving wife, who's generous with her time, she's generous with her energy. She says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide, I'm gonna make vegetables and a side and a protein and a carb, and, and this is all gonna just, it's gonna lead us towards life and fulfillment and satisfaction. It's gonna fill your tummy and in doing so, fill your soul. And as she lays that out for us, it's so often that my kids can sit down, they're like, I don't like potatoes. We're like, it's a French fry. They're like, I don't like potatoes. And so we tell them what we've learned to say over and over again is, you know, sometimes you can eat what's not your favorite. You can eat something that's not your favorite. You can actually feel one way, but then act a different way. That is something that you can do, I promise. And it's true for all of us, that we are called by the Lord to consider the consequence of our actions to not just be carried along by our feeling, to not just be swept away by our momentary desires, but to actually pause and consider what is this decision leading me towards? 
What does the Lord say about this, this feeling I have to, to be angry or to, to boast in, in my accomplishment? What does the Lord say about this desire to, to, to get what's mine, regardless of others? God speaks to a lot of these desires that, again, aren't always wrong in and of themselves, but these desires that so often lead us to be tempted to sin, to disobey him. And so we can pause and we can actually look ahead. One of the best practices I was given in college, I was, I was at a breakaway. Ben Stewart was the director of breakaway at the time, and he was teaching on basically this. He was teaching on temptation. He was teaching on sin. And the best practice he gave that I'll always remember he says, I, I want to challenge all of you young people, I want to challenge all you college men and women, that when you are tempted to really ask yourself this simple question, what's on the other side of this sin? What's actually on the other side of this decision that I'm tempted to make? What am I going to think or feel? What's going to happen five minutes after this temptation that I have, to give in to this, to give in to that, to say this, to do this. What's just on the other side? And I'll tell you, that's a practice that I took to heart. It's a practice that I try to be disciplined to, to use. And it's amazing that God, being rich in mercy, also rich in wisdom that we talked about last week, he gives us discernment. He gives us wisdom. And if we really pause and we reflect on what's on the other side of the sin, it is really effective at helping cut through the deception that sin brings, that temptation brings, and it helps prevent us from facing the destruction, the death, the consequence of disregarding the commands of God. What's on the other side? And now this is challenging, right? As James talks about this, this temptation that we have that, that comes to bear over and over and over again in our life. It's not just that he's helping us identify how, where it shows up or, or how it works, but he then provides hope for the people of God. He provides hope for us that even in temptation, we have a defense given to us by God. This is what he says in verse 17. He says that all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. See, James shifts his focus. Instead of talking about the destruction, the deception of sin and temptation, these terrible things that give birth to sin, that give birth to death, he says, let me shift your focus to the God who loves you, to the God who is generous in his giving, to the God who provides every perfect gift. James is intentional. The language here in the Greek is he's saying that it's not just that everything he gives is good, but it's also the way that he gives. We've maybe received gifts in the past that came with strings, that we accepted someone's generosity to only to later find out that wasn't really generosity, it was, it was leverage. James is saying that's, that's not how God operates. He gives generously. It's how he, it's how he talked about God giving us wisdom. Remember, last week, he gives it generously without reproach. God stands ready to provide for us. He's generous. He's, he's good in how he gives. He's good in what he gives. And it's always being given. Right? When he says it's coming down, it's this, it's this continual, it's this constant reception of the good gifts of God. He says it's always coming down from the Father of lights. In whom there's, there's no variation. There's no slightest hint of change. Right, James brings our eyes, I think this is beautiful, to not just the immensity of God, right? So he says he's the father of, of lights, and what's most likely in view here are the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. 
And that's why James gives this kind of turn of phrase to say that he created all these celestial beings that provide light for us. He says, but you know, even though the sun seems to move in the sky, even though the moon rises and falls, even though the stars and the constellations even shift, he says, God who created those lights, he's constant. He doesn't move. He doesn't cast a different shadow today or tomorrow. He says he is the one that is perfect and faithful and trustworthy in all situations. No variation, no slightest hint of change. So he points us to the immensity of God. But what's so beautiful in this is he doesn't say he's just the creator, the almighty, the sovereign being of lights. What does he say? He says he's the father of lights. Not only is he pointing us to the immensity of God, but he's pointing us to the intimacy of God. That he created all these amazing, huge things. And yet he calls himself our father. That's why we read from Matthew 7 during worship, to remember that he is a good father who gives good gifts. That's how he describes himself. That's, how, that's what he wants us to call him, Abba, Father. And James says that what's so amazing about the work of God, what's so amazing about what he's created, is that by his sovereign plan, verse 18, he has given us birth through the message of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Again, he's going back to that birth metaphor. He's continuing this metaphor. This is just as deception gives birth to sin, just as temptation gives birth to sin. It says, and then sin eventually births death. It says, you have been born not of lies, but of the message of truth. Whereas deception brings sin, truth, the truth of God brings life. It's brought us. And whereas sin, when it is full grown, brings death, as we, as we grow, as we mature, as we flourish, we serve as a first fruit of all of creation. What's in view here is James is saying that, yes, the first fruits that, that you were given, the, the Jewish culture, remember he's writing to the, the Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. They would know that the first fruit, the, the principle in the Jewish household was that the greatest, the first, best of your crops, the best of your flock, the best of it was always dedicated to, to the Lord. That's what you gave to the Lord. It was off of, you know, you, you gave him his cut off of the revenue, not the profit. So he says, you are going to give these things. We are set apart for the Lord as first fruits. But not only that, but we're told Paul uses a very similar analogy in some of his letters and talking about how we serve as a first fruit, as a, as a display, as a demonstration of God's perfect plan for creation. Because if we are filled by the Spirit of God, by trusting in the Son of God, then we bring glory to our Father. And the world can look at us and they can see that our lives are different. They can see that God's plan is better. So James says we, we can be this display of the glory of God if we depend on him. Right? That's our best defense, is that we would be dependent upon the Lord, trusting that he is good, trusting that he gives good gifts. But the issue that we run into so often is that even though we might pause right now in this moment and say, yeah, God is good. We might sing the words that are on the screen. God is good. He gives good gifts. 
So often what happens is as we face the pressures and the struggles of life, what happens is it narrows our focus. We get tunnel vision, that pressure, it limits our perspective. And we forget what's true. We forget what's good. This is true of, of all of humanity and all types of pressure. Right? I, I was a history major at A&M, and I remember learning about uh, battlefield awareness, situational awareness, something that, that nations have struggled with, that armies have struggled with for centuries, where you put individuals that are trained, that are prepared for battle, you put them on the battlefield, and under that high-pressure situation, they just forget. They forget their training. They forget that you know, what they, their eyes lose sight of the prize, and they, they start making wrong decisions. And so there's a principle that they're taught, that military personnel, that security personnel are taught over and over again to build their situational awareness, and it's called SLAM. It's an acronym. I love acronyms. And so SLAM is an acronym for stop, right? Stop what you're doing. Don't, don't try to just like move, move, move. Don't try to just work, work, work. Stop. Be still. Look at your surroundings. Look at the situation assess what's really happening, and then manage your circumstance. Right? Stop, look, assess, manage. It's really helpful for a soldier on a battlefield. Now, I can't tell my kids when they're angry or they're upset, slam, like that's, the, no. they're going to take that really the wrong way. But that's what I was doing. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> But this is something that we all need. We need this discipline to pause in the midst of pressure and to remember the perspective of God. Something we talked about just last week. That God is calling us to remember that he is good. That he has shown us grace. Right? In every situation, we can pause and we can remember. We need to remember the grace and the gifts of God. We remember first and foremost that Jesus Christ was sent as a gift from the Lord. That God saw us in our death. He saw us in our deception. He saw us in our destruction. And yet, while we were still sinners, because he is rich in mercy, he sent Jesus Christ out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our sin. And yet, then he rose again on the third day to prove his authority and his power and his, his sovereignty over the sin and the death and the destruction and the lies and the shame and the guilt that otherwise held us captive. He gave us a way to know our heavenly father, to be reconciled, to be restored in relationship with him. That is the gift of God, not by work. We have no reason to boast. That is the grace of God made clear to all of us, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, God continues to give good gifts. We can count our blessings one by one. And there's more to that song. I don't remember it. But that's God has given us reasons to celebrate, reasons to be thankful. Because he is good. He's gracious. He's blessed us in innumerable ways. That's why Paul could say that he could learn to be content in all circumstances, rich or poor, healthy or sick. He says, I can be content knowing that God is my strength, that God is good, that he has given me enough grace for today. In the same way, we need to pause and remember the gifts, the grace of God. And we need to remind one another of these gifts of the grace of God. This is really why we try so 
hard. We put a lot of thought, a lot of energy, a lot of time into creating moments and opportunities for us as a congregation, for us as a church body, for us as a church family to remember and remind one another of the grace and the gifts of God. It's the reason that we started just last semester. We were like, hey, how do we create opportunities for people to come together? And so we, we found a way to, to maybe bring students and adults together for a meal. And it was so great. We had 100-something students. We had 30-something different families. They were like, hey, we're going to, yeah, let's get together. Let's celebrate what God has done. And let's learn and build relationship with one another. Not because we all just need more friends, but because we recognize that by coming together, we are glorifying the Lord. And so we realized, we're like, man, this is so great for students and adults. We're like, what, what if we just, how about we just open this thing wide open? How about we just open it up? And so we're like, okay, let's do that. Let's make a new graphic. Let's give it a new name. And we're calling it Table for Eight. And really what this is, is an opportunity for us to gather together to remember and remind one another of the grace and the gifts of God. That's really what it is. It's an opportunity for us to build relationships with one another. So any one of you, I would hope every one of you, you can scan this code. You can go through our website, but it's easiest to even just scan this code. And you can sign up. You say, yeah, I would love to gather together with, you know, a total of roughly eight people from Southwood. Now, you know, we're counting kids as like half people, that kind of thing. But, you know, there's our hope is that we would be able to bring all of us together, students, adults, youth, kids, whatever. We want to all come together to remember and remind one another about the grace and the gifts of God. That's why this exists. Because we know that as we gather, we glorify the Lord. As we gather, we can encourage and support, challenge one another to live these lives that God has called us to live. To build these relationships that God has intentionally put right here around us. Let's take advantage of the gift of community that God has surrounded us with right here, right now. Because if we want to be a people who live faithful and fruitful lives, we have to remember the truth of the Lord. We have to remember that he is good, that he is gracious, that he has given us good gifts. So as we close this morning, we're going to sing one more song about the glory of God. After we sing, we're going to hear about a couple opportunities we have here at Southwood that are coming up to invest more deeply in the life of this church. But as we sing, as we prepare to, 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 to learn and to grow with one another, my hope, my prayer is that we would go about these things, that we would move in this direction, not out of obligation, not because we're fearful of the consequences if we don't, but instead that we would move forward in our spiritual walk, that we move forward in the growth of our spiritual maturity with gratitude and thankfulness because God is good, because he is gracious, because he has given us good things. So if you would join me in prayer. God, we thank you that you have given us these promises that we can hold fast to. The God that you have not just secured our salvation through Jesus Christ, but that God, that you are guiding our steps day to day, that you have a plan and a purpose for our very lives, that every moment is by your design, that every trial is not wasted, 
that every temptation can be resisted. And so if you would take a moment now, and I would encourage you to just be really brutally honest with yourself and with your God and ask him, God, show me where am I lying to myself? God, where am I being led astray? God, where am I failing to look past the consequences? Where, where am I failing to recognize the consequences of sinful action? God, reveal that to me. And then God, give me opportunity to, to be held accountable to this. God, to confess this, not only to you, but God, to someone I love and trust. Ask him for that direction. Ask him for that guidance. Ask him for that conviction right now.